1: Changed. Good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, May 14th, 2010. This week, episode 167 comes to you from Studio B in beautiful Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes, or Radio Joe, and here with me in the studio will be the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. He had to run out and grab something to be right back. We also have the intrepid environmental Annie and Koalecki at the controls. Good afternoon. Good day, Ann. Today's segments will include uh, an interview with Dr. Claudius Carnegie of the Miami-Dade County Public Schools and also the president of the Indoor Environmental Standards Organization, We're also going to have a special news alert with Representative Rich Workman from the Florida House of Representatives. We're going to do that right in just a moment here. We'll then uh, do our usual halftime with Dr. Dietrich Wow, our technical director. And we'll also have Glenn Feldman joining us for halftime and the roundup. Uh, We've been updating and adding a blog to the IAQ Radio site every week after the show, so check it out at iaqradio.com. I first want to make sure that I uh, let our listeners know that we're going to introduce Dr. Carnegie formally here after we do this news alert, but I also want to bring him on the line when we have Rich Workman. He was first elected to the Florida House in 2008 for District 30, served in the Florida Army National Guard for 14 years, and is currently the co-owner of his family business, Workman Mortgage, located in Melbourne, Florida. Uh, Representative Workman was the sponsor of a bill in the state of Florida that a lot of our listeners are very interested in. Let's see if we have him on the line. We, hello, Dr. Yes, sir. sir. Oh, good. Great to have you. And let's get uh, Dr. Carnegie on the line as well, if we could. Hello. Yes, I'm here. Thank you. Good morning. Welcome, Dr. Carnegie. We'll get your formal introduction, but let's do this little news uh, update. Representative Workman, we were, we've been following the Florida bill because a lot of our listeners are, like are, our um, mold remediation or microbial assessment uh, type people, and there's been a law now in, that was signed, I believe, a couple years back. Uh, and they've all been wondering, you know, what's going to happen with respect to licensing in Florida. Can you give us an update on where we're at now?
2: Uh, sure. Well, um, in 2007, uh, the legislature passed a bill it was before my time that required uh, mold assessors and, and uh, um, mold remediators to become licensed, um, uh, the, and it, it would take effect, I believe, July of this year. Uh, the problem with that bill in 2007 was it didn't say anything about grandfathering, so how did the people that have been in the business, um, be, it mentioned grandfathering, it didn't say how to grandfather, nor did it say it didn't define the test, it didn't define uh, what test is acceptable um, or what class is acceptable. So the bill really would have left everybody that does mold assessing and uh, mold uh, remediation um, operating without a license come July because they wouldn't have been able to get a license because the bill was poorly written back in '7. And
1: my understanding is you sponsored, I guess it would be an amendment to the bill. Is that accurate?
2: Uh, well, no, I, I ran a, a bill this year uh, to uh, fix that law. Uh, so I it, mine wasn't an amendment. It was a full bill that uh, dealt with uh, correcting some of the mistakes from 07.
1: I see. And that was both passed by the House and the Senate now at this point? There are two uh, bills that have been approved?
2: Yes, sir. Uh, uh, the bill is passed by the House and the Senate, and it is uh, – going to go to the governor hearing day now, and then he'll have 15 days to uh, veto it or sign it into law. Uh, And in Florida, if he doesn't sign it, um, but doesn't veto it, it becomes
1: law. Very good. Dr. Carnegie, did you have a question for Representative Workman?
3: Yes. uh, Good morning, Representative Workman. Uh, Good work on that, Bill. Uh, My question, I have two questions, really. And one is, um, I work uh, for Miami-Dade County Public Schools. We've got certified uh, mold assessors and remediators myself included uh where we obtained our certification from what is today called the American Council for Accredited Certification uh I'm wondering how uh will that certification from that independent uh, uh accreditation body how will it be recognized uh by this bill so that uh Uh, people like myself will not have to go and retrain uh, and prove our experience and all of that uh, to be licensed or to be relicensed. Could you explain? I can. The
2: the bill does uh, allow for grandfathering and and the way the grandfathering works is you must must prove you've taken a proctored exam that that, that has um, national acceptance. So your exam that you took with, with that association would work um, and you you have to prove that you've done at least 40 other assessments or um, remediation in, in the uh, in the past three years. So you produce 40 invoices that you you have uh, plus prove you took that exam.
3: Okay. Well, in my particular case, I wouldn't be able to produce any invoices because I do all of that work for our 427 facility. Actually, not all 427 facility would have mold problems or anything like that, but certainly some of them would, and there would be no invoices. So, how would I be able to prove that experience?
2: Well, the the um, uh, the Department um, of Business Professional English they, they know that there's situations like that out there. We actually discussed very similar situations. You'll just need to be able to the the, the number that the industry came up with was 40. It means that you're active in, in the industry. Um, and uh, you will be able to prove that. I'm sure you have done 40 jobs in the course of the last 36 months, whether it was uh, just inspecting some of those 427 facilities or actually doing remediation work. Um, and uh, it, uh, they're going to be relatively liberal um, uh, in, in accepting that. So probably, uh, if I had to make a guess, and this is not a recommendation, but just a suggestion or a guess, um, it, it probably letters from you know 40 different jobs you did, uh, the superintendent or the um, uh, the school board itself to list out uh, the jobs, and, and you'd, you'd be fine.
3: Well, well, in that particular case, I'm actually the certifier because uh, I maintain the uh, Indoor Air Quality Association's certificate for the organization as well as I do have a personal certificate, certificate of my own through the IAQA, so I would be the certifier. So would I be able to certify myself that I have, in fact, done all of that to qualify for my license?
2: Uh, more than likely, but a specific question like that, you'll need to talk to the the, uh, the department directly, um, but more than likely. You're obviously working in the industry. The, the idea of grandfathering and the reason the industry wanted it was to make sure folks that actually do the job day in, and day out um, don't have to start from scratch. Um, on the other side of that same coin is um, the reason the industry wanted to be licensed was to stop people that are pretending to be mold assessors and mold remediation from doing their work. Um, and so I, 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 you certainly fall in a crack, but a pretty small crack. I think that uh, um, the department will certainly work with you, and if they don't, then you call, then you call me.
1: You know, well, I, I believe uh, Dr. Carnegie. If I'm if I'm not mistaken, there is a portion of the bill that actually I don't even know that the uh, people doing work within their own building will have to be licensed, and, and representative Workman. I know you deal with a lot of bills, and you probably don't know this one inside out, but uh, do you know if, off the top of your head if that's accurate?
2: I think that actually is, and you're right, that um, uh, the, the details kind of fade in, and this was a pretty lengthy bill it dealt with um, a, a lot of issues. Um, but I do believe that um, uh, there's a good chance that the doctor himself doesn't need to be licensed. But uh, if he's like me, he'll want to be licensed, and he'll want to go through the grant filing process. And I, I think they're going to be pretty, um, pretty easy to work with. They are trying to keep... Uh, they're trying to follow the lead of the industry, and the industry wanted to keep the good guys, the ones that are doing a day and day out license and force the ones that don't know what they're doing to get licensed and I would say that he does not fall into the category of uh, one that doesn't know what he's doing, so' they're going to work with him and get him licensed okay
1: um let me just ask one more question I know you're you're on a short time here um now that you've you said that once this is presented to the governor, he has fifteen days to veto the bill and if he doesn't veto it then I assume it, it goes into effect it becomes a law and then people can start the application process and as I read it they have to have that completed by July of next year what is your gut on whether or not and I know you can't read minds but is there any uh, background you can give us as to whether you think the governor is intending to veto this or not
2: um, there, there's nothing uh, this bill was a um, um, Highly supported by both the, uh, the the mold industry and the home inspector industry, and um, the veterans that live in Florida uh, and the military personnel. Uh, there is a uh, another part of the bill that um, uh, allows a military soldier that moves into the state of Florida and uh, his wife, maybe is a cosmetologist licensed in say Utah, um, to continue to work as a cosmetologist while she applies for licensure. Uh, at the department um uh, so it's not a bill that he's gonna he's gonna veto if nothing else for that reason alone that that part is in that bill um and it, there was there was a lot of compromising done among the, the the home inspectors uh and the contractors to make this bill acceptable to both parties um so I, I I think the bill's been pretty well worked out and it would it would surprise me uh very much to surprise me if he were to veto this bill.
1: And just real quick, I've got a text question from a listener. Um, there are other nationally recognized uh, groups like the IICRC. They have a, a certification. I assume that any nationally recognized group, uh, the way the wording is in here, they would accept that training.
2: Yeah, that that, that was actually a, um, a hard fought battle because every one of those organizations wanted to be listed in the in the law as the one providing the certification. So my compromise with the industries was the word any. Um, We don't really care which one it's certified by as long as it's a real organization with a real um, membership base and a real pocket exam. Um, uh, So, yes, to to your text listener, uh, um, any of those organizations will suffice.
1: Okay. Representative Workman, I really appreciate you joining us here. And uh, my co-host, the Z-Man, made it back in. I think we've covered pretty much what we wanted, and I know you're on a a uh, tight schedule, and uh, we want to thank you for joining us, and maybe we can get you back once we have the final bill in place.
2: Well, thanks. I'd be happy to come back. And, uh, uh, Doctor, if, if if you go through the process and they're giving you a hard time, uh, you can find me on the, the website there, the my, my gov and uh, I'll be happy to help you through that process. There's no reason folks that are working in the industry should find themselves not grandfathered. And that was part of that. That was um, a big part of the reason I ran this bill the way I did to make sure that those that are in the industry continue to do in the industry without a big burden to small business uh, as a small business owner. That was important to me. So, Doc, make sure you you, you look me up if, if you need my assistance. Happy to help. And that goes for all your listeners in Florida as well.
1: Thank you so much. Okay, you. you bet. Thanks again, Representative Workman. Okay, listeners, that was uh, Representative workman from the florida house and uh, we had a quick report on the update on the bill we appreciate that Uh, before we get back to our interview with dr claudius carnegie we want to make sure we thank our sponsors indoor environment connections the newspaper for the iaq industry subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com.
0: dry east products providing equipment for drying water damaged homes and buildings dry is first in drying solutions at dri
1: dot com. John Don Products. We're a restoration and abatement contractors shop at John Don, J-O-N-D-O-N dot
0: And our new marquee sponsor, Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management. Who provide management best practices and in-depth cleaning solutions to help keep readers ahead of the curve and successful in their daily operations. Visit them at www.cleanfax.com and www.cmmonline.com for more information on these invaluable resources and to subscribe. Be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Listeners win a cool prize by out fellow IAQ listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the microband trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is very easy. Simply email it to Cliff Z at ProRestoreProducts.com. Now for the microband trivia questions for Friday, May 14th, 2010. Andrew Carnegie was a Scottish American industrialist, businessman, entrepreneur, and a major philanthropist. We have two questions today. In which city was the first Carnegie Library built, and what city is home to the
1: first Carnegie Library built in the United States? Back to you, Joe. All right, thank you, Cliff. Let's get to our formal introduction of Dr. Claudius Carnegie. Dr. Carnegie is a professional engineer who is currently working as the director to District Regulatory Compliance Department for the Miami-Dade County Public Schools. He is also an adjunct professor in the mechanical engineering department at Florida International University in Miami, and a research associate in the International Hurricane Center at FIU. He's also involved with applied research in hurricane modification. Dr. Carnegie is an FAA licensed commercial pilot With multi and instrument ratings for fixed wing land airplanes, he has a long and varied history of professional, civil, structural, and transportation engineering accomplishments in the U.K., Canada, the United States, and the Caribbean, including but not limited to general administration, project construction, management of civil, transportation, and facilities-type projects. He has also taught various business engineering and mathematics related courses at the community college and university level in the united states and in canada since 1980 he is an active participant and website architect and contributor to the nasa funded all-star project he has a bs degree with honors in civil engineering from the Loughborough University of Technology in the United Kingdom, a Master's of Engineering degree in Civil Structural Transportation Engineering from Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, and a Ph. Degree in Environmental Science from Kennedy Western University, and an Educational Doctorate in Higher Education Leadership from Nova Southeastern University in Fort Lauderdale. He is also the current President of the Indoor Environmental Standards organization. I think we have some intro music for Dr. Carnegie. Okay, Dr. Carnegie, do we have you on the line again? Oh, there we go. Hello, Dr. Carnegie.
3: Yes, sir. I'm here, and thank you so much for that very humbling introduction and beautiful music.
1: <laughs> thank you. I don't know if you caught that theme. That's the theme from, what was that, Cliff? I, Claudius. I, Claudius. There you go. All right. <laughs> we, we, we do our best to tie it in with the guest. Uh, anyway, I, first I want to thank you for uh, allowing us to uh, bring on Representative Workman, and uh, I know that ties in nicely with what you're doing there. And, and I've got a question on your bio. Um, you know, I, I was caught by the fact that you were a pilot. I'm curious, when did you begin flying, and, and do you still get to go out and do any flying?
3: Yes, sir. I started flying, uh, actually, I started flying when I was doing my bachelor's degree in the United Kingdom back in the uh, the early 70s. And uh, a couple of my colleagues, they went on to fly for the airlines, and uh I kept uh, going on in education, and went over to Canada to do my master's degree, and then I got full of license in Canada, and uh, and then when I moved to the United States, I uh, expanded my uh, my piloting skills by pursuing the commercial rating uh, for fixed wing airplanes and uh, and for helicopters. So. Wow. Um, You know, I've been flying essentially since uh, the 1970s, but more actively uh, since about the 1980s up until now, and I still try to get out nowadays about once a month. Uh, Over the past couple of years, I've not been flying as extensively as I used to, and extensively meaning about three, four times a week. I'm now down to about once or twice a month.
0: Well, let's start with your current position at Miami-Dade County Public Schools what is the director district regulatory compliance department position what are the responsibilities there doctor
3: okay um well my uh my job description is about 8 pages so uh, <laughs> i'm going to
0: tr-
3: i'm going to try and summarize that in about uh, a minute or so um, my uh major functions and responsibility as a director to regulatory compliance for the Miami-Dade County Public Schools, which by the way is the fourth largest school district in the nation uh, behind New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, and then us. I think behind us is Clark County in Nevada and then Broward County which is just north of us. And uh, essentially I direct, coordinate, and supervise all of the district-wide activities to ensure full compliance with environmental regulations for the district's uh, 427 facilities today, that's the population that we have, which includes capital and maintenance functions specifically relating to land, air, water, sewer, on the ground and above ground fuel storage tank, indoor air quality, including all of the permitting that relates to all of those activities at the local level, which is the city, uh, state, county, and federal uh, regulatory compliance bodies and agencies. I also provide uh, from, uh, from this position support and liaison with several school district departments such as the legal department the property acquisition department in that i have to do environmental site assessment before they can close a deal on a property to make sure we're not buying contaminated lands i uh work very closely with the ada american disability uh uh office the uh, capital construction department uh in terms of ensuring that built facilities uh, meet certain maintenance requirements and minimum standards. Uh, and, of course, my uh, my office, Regulatory Compliance Department, is under the umbrella of the Maintenance Operations Department. So, obviously, I liaise with all of the other uh, trades and uh, administrators in the Maintenance Operations Department. Uh, because of the indoor air quality uh, oversight uh, administrative services that I provide. I'm also involved with the workers comp department because we do get uh, workers comp type complaints from time to time from teachers and employees because of indoor air quality issues and those kinds of things. I work very closely with the budget department, especially in these days with uh, budget issues here in South Florida. Work very closely with the procurement department for acquisition of services because not everything that we do uh, are being done by internal staff. We have to contract out, so uh, I have to work through and with the procurement department to uh, to facilitate those contracting out services. Uh, I work very closely with the various educational entity because we see them as our customers, and uh, we need to keep them comfortable and uh, productive and ma- maintain the learning environment so that it is conducive to... Uh, effective educational outcomes, and of course, I work with other district stakeholders, both uh, internally and externally uh, as part of my job function and some of that overlaps with some of my uh, board activities with other outside entities. I sit on several boards, some of which uh, they 're all nonprofit boards for example, I sit on the ISO which is a nonprofit board I sit on several local Community boards here in the Miami-Dade County, as well, and some of those things overlap with education, transportation, and those kinds of things.
1: Wow, you got a you got a plateful there. Huh? <laughs> now, what kind of budget are you uh, do you have to work with for all this regulatory compliance?
3: Okay, um, as as I mentioned earlier, our budgets are being slashed. In fact, I just submitted my departmental budget about two weeks ago. And, uh, I mean, five years ago, I was operating a $15 million budget a year, and I'm now down to uh, $10 million, and I was just told last week that I might have to shave another million off. So uh, we're down to about $9 million for what we do. Uh, the district-wide budget, just to give you some perspective, uh, about five or six years ago, we used to uh, operate with a $6.5 billion, that's with a B, budget, and, uh, and that was for educational as well as facility issues. More than half of that was for the educational side of the house. Uh, and then the other uh, 50% of the other half, uh, or the, the, the other 40%, let's say, uh, was for personnel. So you, you have some idea how my $9 million is actually worked out from that overall, uh, overall budget. Uh, but every every department is being slashed right now, and uh, although I have not lost any staff, uh, that's on that's on the table right now. I have a staff of 25, uh, 24 people, and it's possible that maybe two or three of them might go uh, before the end of the year because of uh, budget situation. So, simple answer to your question, I'm down to about nine million this year.
1: Okay. Now, for okay. With that amount of money, I'm, I'm just curious, you know, you, you deal with a lot of regulatory compliance issues. Which which of the issues takes the most time and, and which of the issues takes the most money, I guess?
3: Uh, the routine stuff takes most of the money and takes a lot of personnel time. Uh, there are some capital functions that I have as well. Let me describe that. The routine stuff involves... Uh, maintaining our 427 facilities. It could be pumping out and maintaining all of the grease traps. The grease trap is an environmental infrastructure that connects to our cafeterias to make sure that all of the grease and so forth that is being washed in the cafeteria that goes down the sink and all of that uh, gets trapped before it gets into the public sewer so we don't get the grease going down uh, the, the sewer lines down the street, so it can uh, coagulate at some point and cause blockage to residents and other uh, facilities, uh, our neighbors down the street, so to speak. So uh, that's a major maintenance issue, and we're on a schedule where we need to get to all of our grease traps at all 427 facilities at least twice a year. So so that is an ongoing maintenance and operation functions. Now, some of these grease traps, because of uh, poor construction quality, some of them do deteriorate, and when that happens, it becomes a capital project. So I have to uh, make arrangements through contracting services to replace those grease traps as a capital construction item. Uh, there are lift stations. Uh, Florida is very flat not like up in uh, Pennsylvania where you can have all of your sewer lines sloping forever and ever and ever uh, that's not the case here in Florida because it's so flat our uh, average elevation above sea level here is probably no more than 20 feet no more than 20 feet above mean sea level here whereas up in Pennsylvania you're probably seven, 800 feet above sea level so you can get your sewer lines sloping down forever and ever and ever so because we can't get a sewer line sloping down, we have to use what we call lift stations where we get the sewer line sloping down to a certain point, and then we got to put a big tank in the ground and catch all that stuff, and then lift all that stuff and re slope it again and we've got several of those lift stations that uh obviously needs to be maintained they've got pumps, and electrical. Uh, infrastructures and even the tanks themselves some of which are about 10 or 15 feet deep depending on the size of the school so that's another infrastructure issue that uh, we spend a lot of time and money maintaining because the sewage flows every day so those lift stations got to pump every day and the pumps do break and uh, you know we've got to make sure that uh they're operating some way shape or form fortunately we have some redundancies in those lift stations in that there are at least two pumps so my staff continuously monitors them and uh, we get alarms that uh, notifies us or the neighbors if a pump goes down so that we're not surprised with backing up uh there are also uh, backflow prevention devices which are other infrastructures that uh, we we need to maintain and then of course the the biggest load on the capital side everything that I've described so far is just a sampling of the O&M operations and maintenance side of what I do on the capital side uh, because the county is so large and uh, because a lot of facilities were built in the forties and fifties and areas that were not serviced with water and or sewer we also have uh, lift station uh, not lift station wastewater treatment plants we also have potable water plants where we're pumping well water and we're treating it and and providing uh, potable water to some schools and then some of these schools uh, are now getting sore in the neighborhood because of growth so as they build residences in some of these school areas they bring in water and sewer and as soon as that happens then we've got to take those schools in those neighborhoods off of uh, well water and, and, uh, and wastewater treatment plants and connect them to the public facility, and that creates a major capital project. Uh, so that keeps us real
0: busy. Um, do you get indoor air quality complaints?
3: Oh, big time. Okay. And uh, uh, the indoor air quality uh, problems and complaints really magnified back in about uh, 2002. I think that's probably the era when mold was described as gold. And um, and we used to get a lot of teachers and staff complaining about issues, and several of our buildings got labeled as sick buildings. And the teachers' union in 2003 filed a lawsuit to try and shut down some schools that they claim were extremely sick building. And I think the lawsuit was for four schools, And uh, when that happened, it got our superintendent and our school board's attention uh, uh, because they were trying to shut down those schools, and we just couldn't have that. So I was engaged at that time to find a remedy to what they claimed was sick building. And uh, uh, based on what I was following up to that point, I was very well aware that it was beyond just a sick building we had a very pervasive indoor air quality issue. So uh, I gave a preliminary report to our superintendent of the day back then, and we changed superintendents like about every three or four years here, um, and and our school board, and uh, they gave me further mandate to set up a task force just to properly study this problem and come back to them with uh, a master plan or a set of actions, if you will, to, to try and uh, comprehensively address the problem. And I delivered to the school board in November of 2003 uh, that master plan. And uh, as a result of the task force that I had put together, the task force consisted of stakeholders from just about every aspect of the school district plus external. In fact, I also had uh, someone from the U.S. EPA sitting on that task force. They they were based in Atlanta, and we had to fly them in here for – uh, for task force meetings and, and all of that. And they contributed to what was a very effective master plan, indoor air quality master plan, which gave us some prescription and and some actions that we needed to take, uh, both in terms of assessment, remediation, education over users, because we found that a lot of the indoor air quality problems we were having uh were not just systems and building issues, they were operator issues. People like for example, uh a teacher would feel a little uncomfortable with the humidity and the temperature in a classroom and in the middle of July, August what she would do with the air conditioning running would open the door wide open. And then uh we get more humidity in the room and then that would generate a lot of a lot of mold and those kinds of situations. So we had a, a major challenge to try and educate users because we'd go there and take remedial action, and then, you know, another week or a month later, we would have the same problem. So education was a, was a big problem. And we did not have the funds at the time to provide the kind of training to all of those people that was necessary for them to really get the message as to what they should or should not do to minimize the, uh, the indoor air quality problem. So it was an excellent candidate in 2004 uh, because of my relationship with the U.S. EPA to go and get a grant. And I got uh, a training grant, which allowed me to not only train all of her principals and and regional superintendents, and at that time we had six regions, and uh, and also um, about 40 to 50 of her workforce who were – Primarily, first responders to mold complaints or indoor air quality complaints, got them all trained and, in fact, got them all certified as well. Uh, I made mention earlier on. I brought Ian Cullen to provide some of that training, and uh, the, Ian and uh, the other companies that we brought in were paid out of that grant. So, uh, yes, we've been getting indoor air quality complaints since about the 2000, and uh, workers' comp claim. Uh, I think we got to a peak of about. $2.5 million worth of workers' comp claim on her books uh, that we're paying out hard cash. That did not include people taking time off work. That was just hard cash we were paying out. And that was a peak. And uh, coupled with the lawsuit, that really got the attention of her board and superintendent and uh, and got me into action with the task force and, and the, the IAQA master plan and so forth. Today, our workers' comp claim is less than 200000
1: it's significant I bet that opened a few eyes yes sir uh, now I'm curious with respect to indoor air quality complaints it sounds like one one of the biggest was mold now I do have a text question here guest six we'll, we'll get to to that in just a moment um, you, you mentioned having trained staff you mentioned getting a grant was that a, a tools for schools grant or was that uh, some other type of grant
3: was the Tools for School grant, because um, I was actively engaged. In fact, back then I was going to the Tools for School Symposium in Washington every year and g- got to know quite a few of the, uh, the important people at the, at the U.S. EPA. And then we also, because of that relationship, that was parlayed into uh, us helping them to develop the new software called Healthy Seat, uh, which we piloted. We were one of uh, nine school districts in the nation that piloted Healthy Seat. Um, so, we, you know, I had a very good relationship in the district, developed through my courting of the U.S. EPA official, a very good relationship. And then we got a subsequent subsequent grant uh, to re- rehabilitate 150 of our, our, our bus fleets. We've got 1,800 buses in our fleet, which we own, by the way, A lot of school districts lease that service. We own our buses. We do lease some buses for special occasions, but the 1800 is a fleet that pretty much moves our kids around on a daily basis. Well, some of those buses, because we don't uh, turn our buses over uh, any less than 10 or 12 years, some of them were actually leaking um, diesel fumes and particles that were getting back into the cabin, and we're causing some asthma triggers for some of our sensitive kids. And uh, I went back and got a second grant to retrofit 150 of those buses to minimize that effect. Uh, so uh, we've had some pretty significant grants from the U.S. EPA through the Tools for Schools and through the diesel program.
1: Now, With your engineering background, do you, do you still get to go out and you know get your hands dirty a little bit, try and solve or, or supervise some of these uh, indoor air quality issues?
3: Uh, not as much as I used to. Back in 2000, I, um, I, I would pretty much go out because I wanted to maintain some visibility as a leader for the Indoor Air Quality Program to let everybody know that I was taking this matter very seriously. So I would go out there with my, uh, my temperature and humidity measurement and my air quality measurement and my infrared machine that I have and, and, uh, you know, uh, checking on fresh air to see uh, what the parts per billion is, uh, whether or not we're getting the 15 CFM per person coming in as fresh air. And we had all of those issues, and I was able to direct instant action when I used to go out there and take care of that. Uh, Today I don't anymore. We've uh, reorganized, and uh, our first responders are trained inspectors and assessors and they receive part of the training that I've just described. And uh, they get those calls, and they respond to those issues now, and they provide a report, and I get to see the report. Um, and uh, if I'm not happy with the report, then I will go back out and verify what they're saying in the report. Um, not a lot, but quite a number of times um, I've, I've disagreed with their reports and taken my own independent measurement. So, yes, go out, roll up my sleeve, take my devices out. And I don't give anybody any of my devices. I've, I've bought them their own devices, so I can sneak out and and, and double check what it is that they're reporting and uh, and and counter their recommendations and 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 take remedial action and so forth. So the simple answer to your question is, I used to today I don't anymore just to go out and troubleshoot some issues that uh, come out come out of reports.
1: I've I've got a text question from a listener here, and actually there's two, but I want to skip to the second one. If we get time, we'll go back to the first. Uh, His question is, would a cadre of private consultants, including retired architects, engineers, and industrial hygienists, and fresh outs, I assume, from industry, who offered, say, 10 hours a month to assist the district to meet their budget shortfall? I I assume he's saying... um, would you be able to accept volunteer help if someone were to offer it?
3: Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, we, our new superintendent, and certainly myself, uh, believe in partnership. Uh, when we have a budget situation like we have now that is so pervasive, that is so devastating, we feel that the most creative way to meet the demands is to find some kind of public-private partnership arrangement. And uh, what the caller is indicating is exactly that, that uh, if there are opportunities where we can find partnership and participation from folks who are either giving money or labor or services uh, that could meet some of our demands and needs, uh, we will certainly embrace that. Obviously, there could be some liability issues, so to the extent that those services will be provided, Uh, We would have to uh, get our legal department engaged to come up with some kind of an agreement so that we could limit liabilities and and other negative consequences that could emanate from that, uh, uh, you know, whatever those might be. And uh, I could think of a few off the top of my head, but I will not articulate them. But uh, there are issues with that that we would have to try and manage and perhaps get some legal instrument to provide the necessary control and to minimize exposure and liability issues.
1: Well, let's uh, note guest six, um, at the end of the show, we always get uh, contact information for our guest, and uh, we'll, we'll figure out how we can get the two of you in touch, and maybe, uh, maybe we can get you some of that help, Dr. Carnegie. Um, before we move on, we've got to quickly thank our sponsors, and then we're going to come right back, and just to let Dr. Wow and Glenn Feldman know, we're going to have you two gentlemen join us for the roundup in about 10 minutes. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at IAQA.org.
0: Grey Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com.
1: ProRestore for cleaning, odor removal, and antimicrobial products. Remediators trust and depend on. Visit them at ProRestoreProducts.com.
0: Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at Legends-Enviro.com. And, of
1: course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at i.e.connections.com.
0: Drys Products, providing equipment for drying water damaged homes and buildings. Drys is first in drying solutions. Learn about them at DRI EAZ.com.
1: John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop, at JONDON.com. Clean Facts
0: and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and
1: products. Okay, we're back with Dr. Claudius Carnegie here, and we've got uh, quite a few questions to go, so we'll get right to the Z-Man. I know you've got a couple that you'd uh, like
0: I have a couple pressing lists. Uh Doctor, could you comment on your experiences managing disaster response for fire, water damage, hurricane events within the district?
3: Okay. Okay. Um- Our emergency response team does not report to me. That's a separate department, but I do work closely with them because, for example, uh, uh, one of the issues you raised there was flooding and all of that. I operate all of the equipment that uh, would go out and pump out storm drain, maintain storm drain, uh, pump out and maintain sewer lines and all those kinds of things. So it's a very well-coordinated effort between them and me, but I do not directly – oversee or have charge of, of the emergency response facility uh, that, that is a responsibility of what we call our safety and emergency response department. And uh, they, uh, they liaise with the, uh, with the county emergency response organization uh, that deals with countywide responsibility just to make sure uh, everything is coordinated. Uh, and our schools are not adversely impacted by storms and all of that. And uh, uh, they are very well, very well organized, uh, very well experienced. And um, and uh, when they need my services, I'm ready to respond. And we work very closely together. But uh, I'm not really directly involved in that, but certainly indirectly.
0: Okay. Uh, what about – well, t- uh, another question it-, it leads me into, do you oversee – uh, the maintenance in the schools you know the janitors and so on and so forth and the pest control program within the school okay good question um,
3: janitors no I do not maintain um, except that on on issues and areas of their responsibility that infringes on on my responsibility like if they're not uh, reporting, backups in a timely manner, if they're not reporting pest issues uh, like cockroaches and mice and rats uh, invading uh, the occupied spaces and all of that, then I get involved with their leader and provide them with the necessary training and sensitization so that they know what they should do and when they should do it to get my office involved. Now, as far as IPM goes, yes, I'm definitely involved with IPM and... uh, that's integrated pest management, and uh, uh, we essentially use the uh, the protocol from the U.S. EPA, and we have been doing that for quite a number of years because we believe that IPM is an effective and environmentally sensitive approach to pest management that relies on a combination of common sense practices. So we try to educate all of our people out in the field about some of these common sense things, like don't eat in areas that are occupied Uh, don't throw food all over the place Uh, you know don't spill milk all over the place and those kinds of things Uh, we keep uh, food and or soft drink machines and all of those kinds of things in corridors and not in occupied space our IPM programs are usually very current we do research and try to stay abreast and ahead of that Uh, it, it involves comprehensive information on the life cycles of pests and their interactions with the environment. And this information in combination with available pest control methods is used to manage pest damage by the very most effective economical means, especially in these tight budget times and with the least possible hazard to our students or staff and to our buildings and facility.
1: I've got a a text question. I'll I'll get to that in just a moment for the listener there. Uh, But before we do, I've got a question that's been kind of one that I've been wanting to get to, so as the host, I get my choice. I would imagine you've got buildings that were constructed, and I heard you say from the 40s, maybe even earlier, but 40s, 50s, 60s, up to very new facilities. What era of buildings seems to give you the most problems with respect to indoor air quality complaints? (laughs) Good question.
3: All of them, but... uh... (laughs) But uh, recently, the new one's been very, very challenging. Um, uh, we've been attempting to uh, meet some lead re- leads requirements, uh, leadership in energy and environmental design requirements. Uh, we do not have anything that is platinum or gold or silver. I believe we have a bronze, and we're trying to get to some of these other levels. Um, but these buildings are creating all kinds of challenges. Like our designers and architects, I don't think they totally get what LEEDS is. And, um, and, and it, it has been some of the new facilities have been really, the ones built over the last three or four years, been really giving us a lot of trouble. We've been spending a lot more time on HVAC issues and, and customer comfort issues uh, on these new buildings. Uh, than we have with some of the older buildings. The ones that were built 40, to 50 years ago uh, create some challenges as well because most of those buildings were retrofitted with window units and those kinds of things which are not the most comfortable. They also make a lot of noise, so there's noise pollution and all of that. But um, because of new technology in, in the HVAC industry, uh, we have um, a collection of all-air system, we have air-water system, we have all-water systems, and there seem to be always a challenge trying to balance the sensitive and the latent heat situation in all of our buildings here in South Florida. And as I mentioned to you before, um, there's been some lack of education from some of our users as well uh, that also exacerbates some of the problems that we have that are systemic problems to start with. And then also because of budget issues, we're finding that we're not able to respond as readily as we should uh, when the complaints come in to try and deal with some of these maintenance issues, Um, you know, changing VAV valves, changing out uh, chillers and those kinds of things, some of which are very cost prohibitive too, so.
1: Okay, We're going to go to our roundup in just a minute, but before we do, I want to make sure I don't neglect your position at the Indoor Environmental Standards Organization. I know you were recently uh, elected as president of that group, and uh, first I'd like to ask you for our listeners, what led you to get as involved as you are, I mean, you're the president now, with the Indoor Air Quality Association and the Indoor Environmental Standards Organization?
3: Well, my relationship started out with the IAQA, the Indoor Equality Association, as a result of uh, uh, the Indoor Equality Master Plan that I uh, mentioned earlier on back in 2003. I think I joined up with the IAQA about 2003, 2004. Uh, I don't quite remember, but in that time frame. So um, when I got involved with the the IAQA and saw what they were doing – It it really tweaked my interest, and I started to look at ways and means to get involved with the IAQA, and then they went through uh, uh, an organizational change where the ISO uh, got involved or started to become involved and started to get a little bit independent, and they put a call out for membership on their uh, consensus body, which was the first time I'd put an application in, got involved with the CBE, and got actively engaged in working with the CBE just as a member, and then uh, and then got involved with the uh, the residential and naturally the school subcommittee work, and um, and then uh, because of my enthusiasm and willing to provide back to the community and to to these organizations. I sit on 14 different boards, so you can understand that I'm a believer in giving back. Um, I then uh, was very engaged in the transformation of the structure of the IASO to the point now where they're an affiliate of the IAQA, and I guess that process gave me a little bit of profile, and my peers saw fit to elect me as president of the IASO for this current year. So, I mean, that's the evolution of that.
1: Okay. Dr. Carnegie, hang on for one moment. We're going to go to what we call a roundup, where we go back around the table once. We're going to bring Dr. Wow and uh, Glenn Fellman in. We'll all ask one last question, and then we'll have to wrap things up. Okay.
4: Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw,
2: high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride on.
1: Okay, let's see if we've got Glenn Feldman first. Then we'll go to Dr. Dieter for any comment he may have and uh, Cliff and myself. Uh, Glenn?
4: Sure. Thank you very much. First of all, great show today. Uh, wonderful to have the representative on as well. I wanted to just add a comment that uh, my office spoke to Governor Christ's office this morning. They're just waiting for presentation of the bill. Apparently there's a big backlog of bills that have gone through the legislature. They, they get presented to the governor in sequence. Uh, and they said there's no reason or indication that the governor will not sign the bill. So there you have it. Uh, my question for uh, Dr. Carnegie was, uh, was the following. It has to do with the uh, Indoor Environmental Standards Organization, where I, I have the pleasure of, of doing work alongside of him. Uh, the question is this, uh, for the benefit of the listeners. IESO has is recently uh, engaged in projects with the Restoration Industry Association and has also brought onto its uh, uh, subcommittees representatives from the IICRC, or Institute of Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification. I wanted to ask uh, the good doctor, what is his vision for IESO when it comes to partnering and working with other organizations
3: in the industry? I believe that uh, this whole indoor air quality, or in fact, I'd even generalize it to indoor environmental quality issue, um, is not one-dimensional. And uh, no one organization can meet the multi-dimensional needs of indoor air quality issues. So the only way that we could comprehensively address all of that and satisfy the needs of our public and our environment would be some kind of partnership so we could bring in all of the expertise and the assets and experiences and resources from all of these different entities that contribute to the indoor environmental quality. So the IESO or the IAQA or the ACAC or any of these other organizations by themselves can't do it. So we've got to find a way to effectively partner, and I believe in a public-private partnership type of relationship, Uh, even partnering with the US EPA or some other government entity because they can't uh, satisfy the needs of the public either. So um, I I see us working together hand in glove with, with all of these partners and all of these organizations to effectively meet the global, national, and comprehensive needs of the indoor air quality environment. And the other thing is uh, we should also be thinking about partnering with international entities because this is not just a domestic national issue. It's an international issue, and there are tremendous opportunities if we could start thinking along those lines, thinking out of the box to see how we can engage uh, international partnership. And uh, we're also looking at that as part of the IASO so mission and vision. Okay.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Glenn. We appreciate you joining us. Hopefully, maybe if we have time, we'll get you back. Uh, Dr. Wow. Yeah. Can you hear me? We can hear you, Dr. Dieter. Okay, very good. I don't
5: know whether I was muted or not.
1: But you're back. Any comments or questions?
5: (laughs) Yeah, I have only comments. I don't have questions, but I just (laughs) can. It is amazing to me that in the year 2010 or thereabouts, doesn't matter, give or take uh, uh, minus five years, we still haven't learned how to build uh, efficient buildings which are environmentally correct, to put that in quotation marks. Uh, it's, it's, It's amazing to me. It is absolutely amazing to me that we don't know how to size, the right air conditioning system for the right building. And with all the knowledge we have about insulation and this and that and the other, we are still screwing up left and right. I mean, it's, that, that to me is unbelievable. The other thing is, and that kind of bothers me, I'm sitting here in my office and I'm looking at the street, and every morning there comes a school bus. I think there, I, that is one of those big things. I think, but I don't know how many they seat, 50, 60, something like that, if they're full. And there comes a school bus with two students in it, and I, I just saw it go by over here again. I don't know what he's doing at 1 o'clock. Maybe it's now spring break or what have you. And, you know, when I went to school, I went to school with my bicycle, and uh, there was nobody overweight, and <laughs> that was all right. But I don't see... I don't. I don't understand why we have all these school buses polluting the air left and right. Not one of them is electric. They're all diesels, and they're all spitting out that stuff all over the place. Anyway, it is getting close to uh, to one o'clock, and maybe I have a trivia question which is interesting, and it fits into something with the FAA, um, and we talked about that. I. I like. I, I prefer to fly airplanes which have a stall speed of about 15 knots. <laughs> they are called uh, high-performance uh, gliders. Anyway, with the passage of the here's a trivia question. With the passage of the Occupational Safety and Health Act on December 29th, 1970, on page 30. So the whole act is only 29 pages long. On page 30. Is an amendment. There's always an amendment to something which has something to do with the FAA. If somebody knows what that is, uh, that will be fine. And I will not forget um, Dr. Carnegie's uh, name because I live in Carnegie, (laughs) (laughs) which is a suburb of Philip.
1: Thank you, Dieter. And, and, and if anybody knows the answer, we'll add that to the trivia list yeah, today. Sure. Why not? And uh, send it to Cliff Z at Pro Restore Products. And, and t- tell uh,
0: Dieter to email us the answer. Tell Dieter to
1: email. Yeah, we'll get the answer from Dieter, and we'll get back to you, Doctor Carnegie. Did, did, would you like to comment on the school bus issue? I, I bet you're doing something to try and help with that.
3: Well, I mean, uh, we uh, we're trying to go either hybrid or some alternative fuel type of uh, school bus operation. And I've been pushing for that for quite some time. As a matter of fact, uh, I'd given a proposal about three years ago whereby we should look into the possibility of coming back to her cafeteria uh, with private entities to come back to her cafeteria and pick up the grease in containers that they would provide to our cafeteria so they could take that grease and go away and make biofuel. Uh, that would serve two purposes. One, it would minimize the uh, the diesel fumes from our buses. Number two, it would minimize the amount of grease going in the grease trap that I got to pump out uh, of those 427 facilities at least twice a year, which would save the district some money. It's a win-win situation. Some or other I've not been able to convince the powers that be in the school district, that that is a worthwhile venture to pursue. So uh, I haven't given up, but I, you know, in these budget times, uh, they don't want to hear that discussion right now, so I have to be strategic as to when I bring it back. But uh, I agree with the uh, with the commenter there that, uh, yeah, our school buses are spitting out a lot of fumes, and that, it, that was the reason, in fact, why I... Uh, submitted a grant application and won some money from the U.S. CPA to retrofit some of her old buses so that we weren't impacting some of her asthmatic kids uh, traveling on those buses several years ago. So very sensitive, very uh, much in agreement with the caller, and uh, trying to solve that problem. But uh, it's something I'm trying to champion, but I'm not winning so far.
1: I have a feeling you'll be successful down the road. Do you have an extra minute or two that we can keep you on? I've got a text question, and I've got one follow-up on the bus issue.
3: I'm all yours. I'm Uh, all yours.
1: Great. We appreciate it. First, the text question is, uh, has your department had any success in in working with a certified industrial hygienist? Do you require them on certain projects? Do you use them?
3: Yes, we have a certified industrial hygienist on board. Uh, We do hire them from time to time uh to assist us in uh in some assessment activities and some reporting activities and all of that but not extensively because uh, we do have the in-house capability and expertise
1: so you do have one on staff then okay Uh, that's that's i think that's fairly unusual and that's that's great to hear i have a follow-up on the bus and then cliff's going to ask a final question i understand you did something unique with old school buses, and maybe I'm wrong, and and, and I believe it had to do with uh, disaster relief in Haiti. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
3: Yes. Um, I'm not going to take the credit for that. My boss, who uh, is an assistant superintendent in the school system, is a Haitian-American. He's from. He was born in Haiti, uh, but he's now an American citizen, and uh, we talk all the time. Uh, And he's involved with our superintendent uh, in some of the disaster relief effort, both as a school district and in collaboration with the Florida International University, which I'm also a professor at. Uh, They're both working hand in glove uh, in a very coordinated way to provide disaster relief from several different perspectives. And one of the first effective response that we could make, because we've got several old school buses that, We're probably going to be auctioning off in the next year or so. They were retrofitted as classrooms and sent over to Haiti so that the kids who were running around in the street, living in tents, not doing anything for several months, could finally get some education in something that uh, uh, was reasonably sustainable. And uh, we've sent several retrofitted school buses over there to provide uh, that educational infrastructure. But I'm not going to take the credit for that, sir. It was really my boss.
1: Okay. Well, that's a great story. I'm glad we were able to get it on. Cliff?
0: Yeah. You know, I think building on, on one of the suggestions that we had from one of the listeners today, you know, with your uh, experience and success in getting these grants, it just might make uh, some sense to get a grant to teach indoor air quality, perhaps on the vocational side uh, it could be pest management, integrated pest management or heating, ventilation, air conditioning systems, uh, repair to actual students. You know, it could benefit both the schools that would benefit the students because, you know, they'd learn a trade, you know, kind of benefits the environment and, you know, uh, perhaps you might be able to get a grant to do that.
3: Well, we have that already. We have a vocational path here in our, in our strategic plan and, uh, I think we have uh, probably about six schools that are offering programs like that as we speak. Great. And, in fact, um, uh, I, uh, I administer the permitting for some of those schools because some of them have to buy Freon, and uh, that's a controlled product, mm-hmm. and I have to get uh, permits for them to do that. So I'm very well aware that we have those programs going on in a number of schools very effectively. And, in fact, that's a dedicated pathway for some of our students who are not destined to go to university. So uh, they're going off into the vocational area. Very good.
1: Well, first I want to thank our guest today, uh, Dr. Claudius Carnegie. We really appreciate having you on IAQ Radio and hope we can bring you back in the future.
3: I will be at your beck
1: and call. All right. Thanks again for joining us, and I look forward to talking again soon. I also want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Always Slotnick. Fun Always fun, show. Always good. fun. Environmental Annie Koaleki for taking care of the controls. Of course, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, Glenn Feldman from IE Connections. But most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners, um, next week we have Dr. Andrew Persley scheduled. We are working on possibly moving that to the following week and, and taking the week off, but we will work on uh, getting you a notice of that. For right now, we'll have Dr. Persley on next week. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio.